All right, this morning we'll be looking at Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Uh, go ahead and remain seated. I'll read these verses for us. Acts 11, the first 18 verses. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Father and our God, we ask now that you would give wisdom and insight as we seek to understand this text and apply it to our lives. Uh, give us principles and truths from your word this morning that will help us in our walk with you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, uh, you remember that we studied the conversion of the very first Gentiles to Christ, a very significant turning point in the book of Acts. Uh, up until this point, only Jews and the Samaritans, the half-Jews, uh, had been Christians. And to these Jewish believers, it was inconceivable that a Gentile could be saved as well. And so God gave Peter this vision of the unclean and clean animals all mixed together on that sheet, uh, told him to eat them, signifying how the Gentiles were going to be a part of the church now along with the Jews. Uh, through, some, uh, uh, through some prodding of the Lord, eventually Peter obeys Christ. He goes with the men uh, to Cornelius' house in Caesarea, and there he ends up presenting the gospel to them. They are all saved. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They begin speaking in tongues, and Peter baptizes them as Christians. This is a huge moment, of course, in the life of the church as the kingdom is now opening up to include the Gentiles. Now, not everyone was happy about this. And this is what you see in Acts chapter 11. Uh, basically, it's Peter having to explain himself to the Jerusalem uh, church, the Jewish Christians. They had heard that Peter went to be a guest in the home of the Gentiles, uh, which a good Jew just would not do that. And so Peter heads down to Jerusalem and explains what had happened with the vision and the angel who appeared to Cornelius, how God set all of this up, and then how the Holy Spirit was received by them 
And so he basically concludes by saying, who was I to stand in God's way? This was a God clearly behind all of this. Uh, basically, don't blame me, blame God. <laughs> and that explanation satisfies the church. Uh, they come to understand and accept that God has indeed opened up the kingdom to include non-Jews. Now, it's interesting that this story is repeated twice. Maybe as we were reading through Acts 11, you're thinking, uh, this seems like the exact same stuff in Acts 10 just repeated again. It really is. I can't think of anything else like this in the book of Acts or really anywhere in the New Testament, where two times right in a row we're given the same story with basically the exact same details. And some of it, in fact, is repeated three times, because in Acts 10, Cornelius recounts uh, his visitation by the angel uh, when Peter gets there. And so there's parts of this that are actually three times in these two chapters. And this shows us that this text is really important. Luke could have just said here in Acts 11, so Peter explained what happened. He could have just left it at that. But instead, he goes right back over all of this in detail again, because this is a big deal. God wants us to pay close attention to the story of the conversion of Cornelius. There's a lot that needs to be learned here. And so this week is going to be week two of three uh, studying this section. Next week, we're going to come back and uh, park on one theme that's found here in this text. For today, I want to go back and answer uh, some questions that you may have had as we just sort of ran through the story last week quickly to kind of get it all out there. Uh, didn't explain every detail. And so I want to go back through some of that, draw out some points, and hopefully answer a few questions from the text. I have five questions in mind that we will look at, and I'll give them to you uh, now. Number one, was Cornelius acceptable to God because of his works? And here's the verse I'm referring to, uh, verse 34 and 35 of chapter 10. It says, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now that sounds like Peter is saying... If you fear God, like Cornelius did, if you do what is right, it's already been mentioned that he was a, a God-fearing, devout man, that he uh, gave generously to people, he was generous with his, his money. And so Cornelius fits this description. He's a man who fears God, who does what is right. And Peter says, such a person is acceptable to God. Now, does that mean that Cornelius was saved because of his good works? Did he earn the favor of God? That's the first question. Number two, is believing in Jesus enough to save you? Is that all there is to it? Because Peter said in verse 43, speaking of Jesus, to him all the prophets bear witness <clears throat> that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So does that mean uh, you can believe in Jesus and live like the devil and you're still forgiven of all your sins because you believed? Third question, what does God do with sincere seeking people like Cornelius who have never heard the gospel? Are they saved? Or do they have no chance of being forgiven unless they somehow hear the good news about Jesus, no matter how sincere or God-fearing they may be? And then the fourth question, should we all expect to speak in tongues at the moment of our conversion? Chapter 11, verse 15, uh, Peter recounting what had happened. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will all be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And so it seems like uh, a very surface reading of the text seems to be saying, if you believe and are saved, God baptizes you with the Spirit, and this is manifested, or we should expect it to be manifested through speaking in tongues. And so a question would be, uh, if that didn't happen to me, am I not truly saved? Last question, number five. What does it mean that God gave them repentance? And here I'm referring to the last verse of Acts 11, where it says, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also... God has granted repentance that leads to life. What does it mean that God granted repentance to them? Isn't repentance something that we're supposed to do? Aren't we commanded to repent of our sins? The way it's phrased here makes it seem like repentance is a gift being given to them rather than a, a command for them to obey. And so those are my questions. Maybe you've had some of them as well. Let's go through these uh, in order, starting with that first one. What does it mean that Cornelius was acceptable to God? What is being said there? Uh, first, let's establish the fact that the text makes very clear Cornelius was a good man. Uh, he was, we read in verse 2 of chapter 10, that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. So Cornelius was a good man, a generous man, a religious man. Verse 22 says of him, uh, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. So he had a good reputation. He was a good man. So one day as he's praying, an angel appears to him and says in verse 13, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So Cornelius was a good man, but he was not a saved man. He wasn't forgiven of all his sins until Peter came and preached the gospel to him, and he believed it. Uh, he had done a lot of good things. He was generous. He had a good reputation. He was religious. He prayed to God, but he wasn't saved until he heard and believed the gospel. Uh, look at verse 31 of chapter 10. The angel says to him, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. Okay, notice in, the, in those verses, the angel doesn't say to him, Cornelius, uh, God's heard your prayers, your, your alms, he, he sees your good works, now you're in the kingdom. No, he says, therefore, send for Peter. You need to hear the gospel of Jesus. God does not save anyone apart from them hearing and believing in Christ. Cornelius, sincere as he was, still needed to be saved. As Romans 3 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All of us fall short of God's standard. All of us are broken and in need of transformation. All of us need salvation from our sins. Some of us are just better at hiding our brokenness than others but we're all sinners. And the person that you think highly of, the more you get to know them, the more flaws of theirs you will see. And so we all need redemption and salvation that, that is only found through Christ. This would include a good, religious, sincere person like Cornelius. He was still a sinner in need of salvation. So then the question is, what does it mean that he was accepted by God? Back to verse 34. 
Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So because Cornelius feared God and did what, it, what was right, he was acceptable to God in some sense, though he was not saved. We already know that, that the angel said, get Peter, he's going to preach the gospel to you so that you can be saved. So Cornelius wasn't saved, but he was acceptable. What does that mean? Well, I think Cornelius represents searching people who are truly longing to know God and do what is right. And so God sent him the gospel through Peter. And I do think there is a connection, I mentioned this on Wednesday night, uh, between the lifestyle, um, the sincerity of Cornelius' heart, his good works, and the fact that God gave him uh, an opportunity to hear and believe the gospel. You see it there uh, back, uh, I don't think I have this on the screen, but back in, in what, uh, verse 31, it says, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, your alms have been remembered before God, so God sees the way you're living. Send therefore for Peter. So the word therefore is our connection that says, because of this, because God sees your sincerity, uh, the way that you're living before him, the way you're seeking God, because of that, send for Peter. He's going to come preach the gospel to you. And so there is a connection there between Cornelius's lifestyle, his works, his sincerity of heart, and the fact that God gave him an opportunity to hear the gospel. So I think Cornelius represents people who are truly longing to know the Lord and do what is right. And so God sends him, Peter, to preach the gospel to him. And I think Peter's statement about being acceptable has to do with the fact that God will accept Jews or Gentiles, regardless of nationality. Uh, we all stand on level ground before God. As John Stott says uh, concerning this passage, the emphasis is that Cornelius's Gentile nationality was acceptable so that he had no need to become a Jew. Not that his own righteousness was adequate, so that he had no need to become a Christian. I think that's a perfect way of explaining uh, that verse. Next question. Is all that we have to do to be saved, hear and believe the gospel? And here we're at verse 43 of chapter 10, where Peter says, To him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So, just believe in Jesus, whatever that means, and you're saved. Well, hold on. Uh, all throughout the New Testament, we're told that to be saved, yes, you must believe the gospel, but you also must repent. It was Peter who said in Acts chapter 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter in Acts 2 says, Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Here in Acts 10, the same Peter says, believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. So what's the deal here with Cornelius being told only to believe? Did he not need to repent as well? Well, first of all, we need to remember that what we read in Acts, in terms of the sermons, the conversations that take place there, often are summaries. I don't think we necessarily have exactly everything that Peter may have said here. Uh, we have the gist of his message, perhaps. And so it's very dangerous to isolate one text from the rest of the Bible and develop an understanding of conversion from that one place. And not to mention, Peter was interrupted before he could even finish his presentation of the gospel. You remember, as he is still speaking, the Holy Spirit falls on them. Uh, also, looking at chapter 11, verse 18 again, it says, When they heard these things, they fell silent, 
Uh, This is after Peter had recounted what happened with Cornelius. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so repentance is right there. Believing the gospel and repentance, uh, those are both present in that text if you keep reading. And so this is the consistent description of true conversion throughout uh, the Bible, that faith and repentance are both needed. Third question, and again, I I apologize for the structure of this sermon. Normally I try to go in some sort of logical order. This is just random thoughts that I didn't get to last week, all thrown into one sermon. Uh, Third question, this is probably the most difficult one. What about those who have never heard the gospel? Do sincere, searching people like Cornelius have to hear about Jesus in order to be saved? And I think the place to start here is in Romans 10, where Paul says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So Paul says very clearly there, yes, you must hear and believe the gospel to be saved. Your faith must be in Jesus. Therefore, you must know the truth about Jesus and the gospel in order for you to place your faith in that. In other words, you can't trust in Jesus' death in your place if you don't know that he died. You can't submit to Christ as your Lord if you don't know that he's alive from the dead. And so the idea that people can be saved without knowing anything about Christ demonstrates that we're thinking in terms of human goodness. This person deserves salvation instead of thinking biblically that salvation comes through the gospel of Jesus. And so, yes, you must know the death and resurrection of Christ. You must believe the gospel to be saved. And this is why we are sent into the world to preach the gospel to the lost, because they have no hope apart from the gospel of Christ. Now, all that being said, I think, and this is, I want to be underline this, I think, I can't say this definitively, but I think that God always gets the gospel to people like Cornelius. Those who are God-fearing, searching people, I think God makes sure that they hear the gospel and have an opportunity to receive it. If God has to give them a vision like he did here, he will. If God has to send a missionary, he'll do that. If God has to send a prophet like Jonah through a fish vomiting him up on land in order to get the message of salvation uh, to Nineveh, he will do it. God goes to great lengths to get the gospel to sincere, searching people like Cornelius. In chapter 8 of Acts, you remember, God sent Philip into the middle of a desert to reach one man on a chariot because he was reading scripture, he was seeking God, and he was having trouble putting all the pieces together. And so I don't think that God lets people who are searching for him die without ever hearing the gospel and having a chance to believe. Paul wrote in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God's wrath comes on those who in their sin suppress the truth. And then Paul explains what he means by that in verse 19. For... What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to him, to them. So God has revealed himself to everyone, verse 20, he's going to go on to say, through creation, 
His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul says the existence of God, the fact that there is a divine power that we are all accountable to, is evidence to anyone with eyes. <laughs> Look around you, see creation. It's clear that there must be a God who made all of this. God has revealed himself through creation. And here's what some people do with that knowledge that we all have. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is what was said in verse 18 about suppressing the truth. <clears throat> they know that God exists and they fight against that knowledge. God has revealed himself in creation. <clears throat> God has revealed his law. Uh, I'm not going to have time to go over all of this in Romans, but God has revealed right and wrong by giving each one of us a conscience. Uh, we all know right and wrong, whether we've heard scripture or not, uh, simply because of the conscience that God has put in our hearts. He's given us the access to know God and to know at least something of his ways. And, and some people just rebel against that knowledge. They suppress that truth. They violate their conscience. They do things they know to be wrong. And Paul goes on to explain in Romans 1, uh, we're not going to take time to read all of that, but they suppress the knowledge of God that they have, and so God's wrath is poured out on them. But there are others in Scripture who do not suppress the truth. Rather, they seek after it. People like Cornelius, like the Ethiopian eunuch. They don't know the gospel, but they're seeking God sincerely. And God makes sure that they get the gospel. He gets the gospel to them through people like Peter in chapter 10, people like Philip in chapter 8, people like you and I today. God puts us in their life so that they can, uh, so that we can communicate Christ to them. At times, God has done this through other means like visions. In the case of Cornelius, reading scripture like the Ethiopian eunuch, there's other ways in which God communicates the gospel to people. Uh, in modern day, I think he does it a lot through technology. A lot of stories that I could tell about radio, the internet, things like that, getting to remote places where they've never heard of Christ, and yet they're listening to John MacArthur in the middle of Africa, and they're hearing, they're hearing the gospel. And so God has ways of getting the gospel to those who are seeking after him. But, and this is important, no one is saved apart from hearing the gospel and receiving it. Now, I know that doesn't answer all of the questions. Uh, I don't know how all of this works. But here's what I do know. Number one, we're commanded to preach the gospel. Uh, number two, throughout the book of Acts, God brings people together so that they can share Christ with them. He takes one person who's searching and seeking God and another person who knows Christ, and he brings them together. And I think God does this even today. And then there's one more thing I know, and this is probably the most important thing in this, this whole conversation to get. God does what is right and just. Back in Genesis 18, God told Abraham that he was about to destroy the city of Sodom because of the wickedness of that place. And Abraham says to God in verse 23, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And Abraham was right. God would do what was just. God did destroy Sodom, by the way. There was nowhere near 50 people 
in that city. If you keep reading, there wasn't even 10 people who were righteous in the city. But there was Lot. Lot was a righteous man. And so God made sure to get him out of the city of Sodom before he sent his judgment, because God will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. He will do what is just. He didn't wipe out the righteous in AD 70 when he brought down his judgment against Jerusalem. He warned them 40 years in advance and told them exactly when to leave the city. Look for these things. When you see them happening, get out because the judgment's coming. When Noah's flood came, that was after 100 years of Noah preaching and the people ignoring him. Over and over, we see the pattern that God gives people an opportunity to escape his judgment. And so for those who have never heard the gospel, and again, this is what I think is the case, if they live up to the light that they have, if they seek after God, God will make sure that they hear of Christ one way or another. All right, we'll have to go uh, faster with these last two. Uh, fourth question, speaking in tongues, is that a sign of conversion? In other words, should we expect this to happen when we get saved? The short answer is no. Uh, in the book of Acts, speaking in tongues was a verifiable sign of the Holy Spirit's filling. In Acts chapter 2, of course, this happened to the disciples of Christ when the Spirit first came, which had to happen. There had to be some sort of visible manifestation uh, that the Spirit had indeed come, as Christ had said. And so the Spirit fell on them. They began to speak in tongues. Again, these were known languages. So it, was, it was a verifiable sign to the people there uh, that God's Spirit had filled them. And here in Acts chapter 10, it happens again with Cornelius, uh, but it wasn't for his benefit. Okay, the point was that the Jewish believers like Peter, who saw this happen, would understand that these Gentiles were now saved too. In other words, it was a sign for their benefit to recognize that God has opened the kingdom to, the, to include Gentiles. Uh, this is repeated in Acts 10, this is repeated in Acts 11, also Acts 15. Uh, this is where Peter is recounting what happened here with Cornelius. Verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. This is referring to him preaching to Cornelius and his household there in Acts 10. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the same Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So the speaking in tongues was a sign uh, of God to Peter and to the other Jewish uh, Christians present there, that these Gentiles were saved. And so, no, you should not expect uh, to speak in tongues at your conversion. I've never spoken in tongues. I don't think it has anything to do with you, you know, not being saved. Uh, so you can, you know, set that concern aside. You should not doubt your salvation just because you haven't had a certain supernatural sort of a static experience. Uh, Galatians 5.22, last thing I'll say on this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Notice Paul does not say the fruit of the Spirit is speaking in tongues, having wild visions of future events, uh, healing people, raising the dead. He doesn't say that. He says the fruit of the Spirit is a transformed life. Those other manifestations were used by God at specific times uh, when he wanted to make clear that the Holy Spirit had fallen on someone. But uh, for most of us, if you want to know if you have the Holy Spirit, a look at the conduct of your life, not some sort of supernatural experience like that. Last question. What does it mean that God gave them repentance? Acts 11 verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, 
God has granted repentance that leads to life. We've already looked at the fact that repentance does in fact lead to life uh, in terms of how do we, how, how are we saved from our sins? How do we receive Christ? It is through faith and repentance. But here it seems to be very clear that God is the one who gives us repentance. And so repentance and faith are both gifts of God and commands from God. We are commanded to repent. We are also commanded to believe the gospel. And yet it is also true that God causes us to repent and God causes us to believe the gospel. It's his work in us. Uh, four passages quickly to show this point. First, in John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, verse 65 he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So we are commanded to come to Christ for salvation, and yet nobody can do that unless God the Father is at work in their heart already. Second passage, uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. Paul says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his appoint, uh, opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so Paul is instructing there that as we are dealing with unbelievers and those who are denying the faith, we are to correct them with gentleness, and, and the hope in our correction is that God would grant to them repentance, that he would lead them to know the truth, to come to their senses. I like that phrasing. Uh, that's what it is to be saved, is to come to your senses, have your eyes opened. And Paul says very clearly that God is the one who does that. Acts 3, verse 26. Uh, Peter said of Jesus, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So when we are saved, uh, yes, we are turning from our sins, but from God's perspective, he is the one turning us from our wickedness. Last one, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Now, uh, there's a few things to point out here. First of all, and I'm not going to get into all the Greek behind this, but when you see there at the end, it is the gift of God, that's referring to everything in the verse. Okay? By grace, you've been saved through faith. So you think, okay, how do I get saved? I get saved by believing the gospel through my faith. And yet Paul, Paul immediately says, and even that isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about this, but... The gist of it is right there in verse 10. We are his workmanship. We're created in Christ, and God is the one who does all of that. Salvation is the work of God. Whether you realize it at the time or not, if you repent and believe in Christ and in the gospel, that is God at work in your heart. Back in July of 2011, I gave my life to Christ. And looking back, it really doesn't make any sense. All of a sudden, I just wanted to serve him. That was a God thing. We don't conjure up our own faith and our own repentance. These are gifts from God. We don't clean up our life and become a Christian on our own. God does it in you. That's why Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Well, who created him? Uh, we certainly didn't. It's all of grace from beginning to end. So God's favor was shown to Cornelius and his friends here 
in granting them the gift of repentance. I hope that will help at least with some of the questions from the text here next week. We're going to close out the Cornelius story by focusing on really the main lesson of the text, which is that God shows no partiality, uh, and so we shouldn't either. Uh, how in Christ we are all unified, and that should be the end of all forms of racism or prejudice uh, against other believers. None of that belongs in the church because Jesus has brought us all together as one body. Uh, we'll dive into that subject next time. Let's pray.